Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, Lord, ultimately that you would bless us and glorify yourself. (coughs) Lord, I'm consciously aware of my frailties, my inability. And I pray, Lord, that when I am weak, you will be strong. This text is not an easy one. And Father, I pray that you would enable me just simply to present your word as it is, to speak your truth as it is. And that not me, but you, through your word, would impact our lives. That the, the, the saints here gathered would be equipped by your word in a way that would prepare them for ministry in a way that would impact their lives, in a way that would allow them to work for you. Glorify yourself in our midst today, we pray, Lord. May your word do its work, and may you be glorified. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, there are controversial passages, and then, of course, there's controversial passages And then there's James chapter 2 and the passage before us. This is one that whenever you speak about the book of James, people immediately will think of this passage and these words. And and let's just dive straight in with our our paradox, as it were, that we we face this morning. The, The problem passage that many people see here in James. Because... We as Christians, we as evangelical Christians, we as Christians who believe in the Word of God, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, we are grounded in in the the essential doctrines of the faith that we see again and again throughout the Scripture. And, And right at the center of our faith is the Gospel. And the Gospel message that we are saved by our faith in the blood of Jesus. In Him dying in our place for our sins, that we have faith, that we place our trust in what he has accomplished. And in that, and in that alone, we are saved. We are justified. We are declared to be righteous, though we are not. In our practice, we are judicially declared to be righteous because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf in our place. Well, that's not just an excuse for a declaration of the gospel that we never want to miss one but we 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 understand these truths and we base our lives on these truths and christians proclaim these truths we we are dis, we are distinguished delineated and we are um we are so often divided by these truths and yet here we have in james 2 and verse 24, James saying, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in that one statement, James, at first glance, out of context, seems to be saying the exact opposite 
of this great truth that we, that, we, uh, that we subscribe to, that we hold to, that Paul teaches in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere so clearly that James seems to, as I say at first glance, be contradicting. So that's the problem. That's the, that's the elephant in the room. There you are. Phew. Anthony's seen it. He knows it's there. And he's, he's going to teach the passage anyway. And as, and as ridiculous as, as it might sound, there are some that might not want to teach this passage. The great Martin Luther, so great in so many ways and yet so flawed in so many ways, in rediscovering the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, struggled with what to do with the book of James, disliked the book of James, even wondered whether the book of James should be in the Bible. And that knee-jerk reaction is one that we have to, my friends, leave behind. We have to leave it behind. Because we know what we have to do when we come across passages in the Bible that are problematic to us at first glance, don't we? We have to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I might humbly suggest that if Martin Luther had taken more care on James chapter 1 and those verses, he might have had a better crack at chapter 2 and these verses. But uh, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. We need to be quick to listen. We need to let James say what he wants to say. And we need to understand it in context. So with that said... By way of introduction, let's look at that context. Let's look at where we are in this book. James is telling us very clearly that there are two ways. There's God's ways and man's way. There's the the heavenly way and the earthly way. This is a conclusion that he is going to be emphasizing in the central part of this letter when we come into it in chapter 3. That there are two different types of wisdom, two different ways of living. And we are not to be double-minded, double-souled. We are to live this one way. And guys, that is the context of the book. And that alone will help you here in chapter 2. That James is trying to say to us, there is a single way of being faithful and devoted to God and we need to be committed to that and not be people who are simply going to say oh well I want to follow Jesus but at the same time in our heart of hearts we really don't and so much of this singularity of our approach of our mind of our faith is seen as we come to the end of chapter one where he starts to talk about what true religion is being a doer of the word and not just a hearer. And this came really into close focus as we came into chapter 2. And in the first half of chapter 2, we dealt very clearly with the issue of partiality. And again, partiality is an issue that in our day and age, we need to be very, very clear on because of all that is being said in our contemporary culture with regards to issues of race. But it's one that in our churches is equally valid and true and was particularly pressing in the context here in James with regards to financial wealth or otherwise. And as we saw last time, the issue of rich and poor is so often to do with what outside the church may be described as fate or misfortune. And that there are those people who had circumstances and difficulties and trials in their lives that would set them back and these people would be regarded as the poor and that we as a church 
need to not show partiality to either the rich or the poor, not to show partiality to people of different races, not to show partiality to people of different backgrounds. And, and bottom line, and this is really what partiality is all about, not to show favour to those who can help us, to those that we would want to be seen showing favour to, rather than simply showing favour to those who have nothing to offer and showing favour to those that maybe others wouldn't want us to be seen showing favour to. And so that really is the heart of partiality. And in dealing with that, at the end of that whole section, he emphasised, and this is our context coming in to verse 14, he emphasised this in the context of the law, that the... Uh, Leviticus 19, this emphasis that you should love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, as we saw, there is this <coughs> doctrine that you should not show partiality. You shouldn't show partiality to the poor any more than you should show partiality to the rich. That's the clear teaching of Leviticus 19. That's the context and that's the foundation. And there goes the whole idea of intersectionality and what have you. The idea that we should favor um, those who are more oppressed... Um, you know, we don't favour anybody. We, there is no partiality amongst us at all in either direction. And so that's the context of Leviticus 19. But here's really what I want to focus on context-wise. If you show partiality, you're committing sin, verse 9, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. And what James then is saying in verse 10 is that if we show partiality... We have broken the law, Old Testament law, law of Moses, that said, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Now this is crucial. This is our context. This is going to make these difficult verses a lot easier to understand. Alright? So let's just, let's just get this again as we come into the context that we're going to find difficult. Pardon me. Right. So here you are. You're an Old Testament saint. Jesus hasn't yet died on the cross for your sins, and you are under the law of Moses. And there, in the law of Moses, there are two commands that are absolutely central. There is, of course, the command to love God, with all your heart and all your mind, all your strength. And there is the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And we see in the Gospels, those two types of love, loving God and loving your neighbor, being, being rightly put as the pillars of Old Testament law. And so somebody says, as an Old Testament saint, right, I need to love my neighbor. And then what they do is they show partiality. Perhaps they show partiality to the rich, so that they might then be favored, that the rich person will pay them back. Oh, here, have this seat. Sit here in the synagogue. Let, let, me, let me give you more attention. Let me give you more time. Let me show you more favor. And maybe you'll put a little bit more, little bit more money my way. Or maybe we show partiality to the poor. Oh, look at me, look at me. I'm the one who loves the poor. This person, this person has so little favor, I'll be the one that shows them favor. You know, that, that whole kind of um, the virtue that goes with that. And, and so when, when we show partiality one way or another, the person showing that partiality would say that they are loving. They would say that they are loving. The one who shows partiality to the rich, they would simply say, well, I'm, I'm simply loving this person. 
And I'm giving them an nice seat. What's wrong with giving somebody a nice seat? Is that not loving? And then you start to prod at their hearts and say, well, why this person? And Christians so often will show partiality, but justify that partiality. Oh, well, you know, it makes sense. Doesn't it make sense to show favor to this person? Don't you know that they work for this major company? Don't you know how much they earn a year? Don't you know how much they put in the offering? We can't afford for this person to be upset. Oh my goodness, no, we wouldn't want that. Because if they were to be upset, and if they were not to come anymore, and if they were not to put their money in the offering, then the whole church would lose out. So really, what I'm doing is being loving. Or if we show partiality to the poor, we would say, well, this this is not the most loving thing to do. This person has suffered great misfortune, so we need to to show great love to them. And isn't to say, of course, that we don't show love to those in need. Of course we do, constantly we do. But we don't show partiality. We don't favour them and make them a more highly exalted person in our midst doing this kind of reverse partiality that is so au fait in our culture and on our society today. We live in this world where we're told, unless you show favour to those who've been shown less favour, that you are actually part of the problem in, 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 in what you're doing. There are accusations of partiality if we don't commit partiality, which is bizarre. And the person who is doing that kind of partiality would say, well, it's simply being loving. This person has suffered and therefore we're going to exalt them and give them favor and we're going to go out of our way because that's loving. My point is this. Partiality is always justified in the name of love. Always. And boy, in our society today, has that never been clearer than it is right now. But the Bible, to that Old Testament saint in Leviticus 19, makes this very, very, very clear statement. Your partiality is not loving your neighbor. That the definition of loving your neighbor is loving this way. And Leviticus 19 describes what that love looks like. And one aspect of what that love looks like is a lack of partiality. We're living in a time where the enemies of God are going to great lengths to win linguistic battles. They understand that words are important. God understood that. He describes Jesus as being the word of God. The coming Messiah was God's word that God creates by his word. That The, the Jews in the Old Testament alone understood that the, the, the word, word, contained so much depth of meaning, so much power, that that in the targums that they wrote, the commentaries on the Bible that they wrote, that they had given God's word, this personification, something which then John uses and understands when he says, yes, God does have a living word. And he was in the beginning with God and he was himself also God. Words are important. Words have power. And the enemies of God are trying to win the battles by by taking words and redefining them. And let's be absolutely clear. One of those words is the word love. I am losing count 
of the number of so-called famous celebrity Christians who are capitulating their faith and rejecting the scripture because God's loving, he wouldn't do that. God's loving, he wouldn't oppose that. If you're following the Bible reading plan with us, we're kind of getting through the book of Numbers right now. If you read your passage already today, you'd have finished the book of Numbers. If not, you've got that to come. Oh no, it's tomorrow, isn't it? Today, is today the day off? It is today the day off, isn't it? So uh, we're just wrapping up the book of Numbers. So you've recently read about Korah and his companions rebelling against the leadership of Moses, rebelling against the authority of God to declare that leadership, and God basically dealing with them by swallowing them up in the ground and them going alive down to Sheol, the place of the dead. Now, if you can handle a God who is love, who does that, then you can handle a definition of love that is perhaps different from how the world likes to use the word love. We are to love our neighbor, but in a way that God defines. In a way that God defines. Now, James makes it clear that the law that we are under now is not Mosaic law, it's this law of liberty. Which emphasizes <coughs> mercy, which gives us mercy, I think predominantly in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between Old and New Covenant, Old Testament law and New Testament law, is that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us, empowers us to live the right way. But my, my whole point in all of this, in wrapping up the previous section, in coming to this new section, is, is really this. God gets to define what love is. And if you show partiality, you can bleat, love, 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 going to love these people, love, 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 all you like. You are not loving because you do not get to define love. God gets to define love. And if you redefine love by your own definitions, then you can keep that love because it is of no value. Because you need to love like God loves. Do we understand that? Okay. That's our, our backgrounds coming in. Now let's let James speak. Let's not, let's not read Paul into James. Let's take this context and let's let James speak. Because James is saying, if you think that you're keeping the command to love your neighbor, but you're not keeping the command to not show partiality, you've not kept the command to love your neighbor. You break one part of the law, you're a lawbreaker. And so, it is that principle and that approach that we have when we come to verse 14. I think we have our context in our mind's eye. Let's progress. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? There's the question that just sets up this whole thing. Again, we have this expression, my brothers. Again, I would translate it, my brothers and sisters. He is, he is addressing us. We have this whole section. He's taken what he's said so far, and he comes now to this entire section. And this is the thing that undergirds it all. If someone says he have, has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Is this something that is problematic to the New Testament doctrine of salvation by faith alone? Clearly not. Clearly not. And I want us to focus today on this idea. 
That if someone says he has faith, but doesn't have works. Now again, let's be careful with words here, in a slightly different way. The word here for works, we can translate it works, but the problem with the word works is that it's, it's been, there's such a theological baggage that comes with it. Faith versus works. What, what does he mean by works? He means actions. And I think it would be fun and helpful, perhaps, to just translate this as actions. So we get the point that James is making. So what he's saying is this. If somebody says he has faith, I believe, I do, I believe, but he doesn't have actions then can that faith, that belief, that trust, save him? Now that's a question that you have to ask yourself. Now that question, if your understanding of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone makes that a problematic question, then you haven't read John chapter 3. Let's turn to John chapter 3. Because when you want to understand, I mean, James again and again and again is referring to Jesus. He's referring to Jesus, his half-brother, and he's, re- and he's referring to the things he said. And when it comes to what Jesus had to say about faith, one of the central passages in the entirety of the Bible is John chapter 3. And if you understand John chapter 3, then James 2.14 is no problem at all. Now, you might be guessing at this point, we're not going to get very far with James 2 and into this whole section. But I think that this this understanding is so foundational that this passage is not going to be a problem to us at all. So hopefully you're now in John 3. Hopefully you're now in John 3. When you're in John 3, we're going to go back just a little bit further into the end of chapter 2. Remember, chapter breaks aren't inspired divinely. The text flows. So let's read from John 2. And verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Okay. We have in English, very brief grammar lesson, don't switch off, it's very simple and it's quite important. Okay, We have in English something called cognates. Cognates are just different words that are, are related to one another and we can, we can really visually see that. The obvious example is the verb to know. I know, you know, we know, they know. We all know, right? When we know something, we have Knowledge, And when you look at the word know, and you look at the word knowledge on, the paper, on a piece of paper, you can see that they look similar. They've got the K and the N and the O and the W, right? That, in a very non-academic, non-grammar kind of sense, that in a very simple sense, is what we mean by a cognate, okay? Here, in this whole passage, there is a play on words with a cognate that we don't see in English because they look like different words to us, but in the original, they are clearly related, and they look the same, and they sound the same, and they are connected. And that is the word, to the verb, to believe, and the noun, faith. And it's easier, I think, if we just have the noun, belief, because then we can see the connection. So we believe something, and we have faith, we have belief. And so... That wordplay is being used here by John, right? So here we are in John chapter 2. And at this time in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, 
Many are believing. Many have belief. Many have faith. They are believers, right? Because they are believing. You think he's just talking, he's saying the obvious stuff. Yes, but you need to get this. Why do they believe? They believed, and let's just take the phrase here, they believed in his name. It's not like you can say, well, they believed, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They believed in his name. They believed in his character. They believed in who he was. That's quite a powerful statement. This isn't just any sort of, well, I think he might be something half decent. They believed in his name. Why did they believe in his name? When they saw the signs that he was doing. So there you are, you have these people, there's a feast going on, people are in in Jerusalem for Passover. A city that would have had quite a large population is suddenly swollen to, to massive amounts of people. Hugely ridiculous. We were living in London in the year, gosh, I'm going to get the year wrong now. I think it was 2000, wasn't it, with the, Olymp- with the Olympics 2000? Maybe that was Sydney. Maybe it's 2004. Oh, man, my brain. The Olympics were in London, and we were living in London at that time. And we got to go to some of the events. We got to go to the stadium and, and watch um, some, uh, some of the athletics and what have you. And it was just, it was a, a wonderful occasion. Um, and... When I was in London going to one of the events, I, I remember um, my friend got tickets to some to volleyball, I think it was. He went to a volleyball game. And you're walking through London, and honestly, trying to get anywhere was beyond rush hour traffic. It was just like there were, there were hordes of people walking down the street, like shoulder to shoulder, like 10, you know, 20 people wide, just going en masse, and there's people having to direct. It was just the whole city was swollen. That's Jerusalem at Passover. That's Jerusalem at Passover. Just everybody is there and Jesus is doing signs and people are going, oh my goodness, what is this going on? We've come to Jerusalem and here is this person, he's doing these signs and he's doing these miracles. I believe in him. The Bible is very clear that these are people who believed and these are people who had faith. Words that we hold very dear to us. Yes? Okay. Let's progress. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. The word entrust there in Greek is the same word, believe. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Do you understand that? They had faith in him, but that faith was insufficient. He didn't trust them. They said, we trust you, Jesus. We're placing our trust in you. Nobody could do these amazing things unless God enabled them. You're from God. We trust you. We trust that you're from God. We trust that you're on the right side. We're on hashtag Team Jesus. Right? We have faith in you. And Jesus says, I don't have faith in you. I don't trust you. That's harsh. Unloving, even, perhaps. Why did he not trust them? Because, it says, he knew all people. Now, ladies, not want to be offended at this point. Lots of people think you might be, which is why it's translated people. But the word in Greek is the word man. And man, in the plural, is men. And as I've said to you all the time with brothers and sisters... 
That includes you too. So when we're talking about all men, we mean all men and women, which in English we would say people, which is why it's translated here, people. But I want you to see that the Greek word is man, because you need to see the play on words, okay? So let me read it that way. The reason that Jesus doesn't believe them is because he, he knows all men. No one needs to bear witness to him about man. That includes you as well, ladies. You're not good either. For he himself knew what was in man. So when you understand that the word people is the translation of man, you have man, man, man. In other words, Jesus knows the heart of man. Jesus knows how wicked our hearts are. Jesus knows that people can say, I have faith, I believe, I'm with Jesus, team Jesus. Let me raise my hands in worship. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And Jesus can say, Matthew 7, get away from me, I never knew you. That there is no guarantee because there is a declaration of faith that we have a relationship with Jesus where he trusts us. He trusts our faith. He said, what are you saying there? Are you saying that you can have faith and it's not saving faith? That is exactly what this passage is saying. Man, man, man. And then there's one more man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man. You see, what Jesus is saying is this. The end of chapter 2 is saying... People trusted in Jesus. People have faith. People have belief. And Jesus didn't have trust or faith or belief in them. Because he knew what man was like. And now, by the way, here's a man. In other words, what Nicodemus is going to do, there is a principle. There is a principle of doctrine here. And John is showing us a principle of doctrine, which is that people can have faith, but it's an insufficient faith, because they are sinful men. Sinful people with sinful hearts. And by the way, here is an example of one of those people. Enter stage right, Nicodemus. He is a man who is going to illustrate being a man of faith, but a man of insufficient faith. Let's have a look. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Let me just say as we come to this passage, I love this passage, one of my favorites in scripture. Please do not refer back to this sermon as Anthony exegeting this passage. We are going to skim, we are going to rush, we are going to miss all sorts of wonderful details because it is serving a purpose for us today in us understanding what James is saying. But what is clear here is this, that Nicodemus is a model of a man who has faith because he comes and he expresses that faith. We know, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We have faith, we believe, we know. Obviously not all of us, because I've come to you at night, (laughs) so that nobody could see. But... There is definitely faith here. And equally, to parallel the end of chapter 2, this is a faith that has come about on the basis of the signs that Jesus did. Because of the things that he did, there is faith. So what does Jesus say to him? Truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says truly, amen, amen, what he's saying is, essentially, I'm about to say something that you, don't, that you wouldn't think is true. It is true. No, no, no. Hold on a second. 
Really, it is true. Okay? It's kind of like this double preparation. What I'm about to say is true. I know, I know, I know. You're not going to believe it, but I'm telling you, you really have to believe me. This is true. So in other words, my point is, is that what Nicodemus is about to hear is something that he would instinctively reject. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, without doing an exegesis of this passage in depth, I want you to simply understand that the expression born again is not a new expression at this point in Bible history. The idea of being reborn is something that was inherent to their understanding of scripture and their, their understanding of that culture. When you became married, it was said that you were born again. When you became a, uh, a Pharisee, it was said you were born again. When you became king, it was said that you were born again. There's various ways in which people were described as being born again. They understood the concept of being born again. A modern paraphrase would be like we used to have the expression, life begins at 40. You heard that expression? I think these days they say life begins at 50. Certainly, I think the older you get, the more you kind of nudge that number up. But it's kind of like the the way that we avoid a midlife crisis, isn't it? (laughs) We say, well, life begins at 40, you know. And what we're really saying is, well, it's a a new birth. You know, it's that kind of thing. And and they use the expression born again in that kind of context. That there was, that here is this, this, this marker in life. This event And from this point forwards, your old life is over and your new life begins. I was very conscious just under 25 years ago when I got married to a very beautiful lady. I can say that she's not here. She's not listening right now. She popped out. Um, That what I was about to do was irrevocable. That what I was about to do meant that who I was, how I'd lived, the decisions I... That was all gone. And that that my life was a new life that was starting from this point. That I was about to do something. I can remember, I I was young, I was ignorant, I was foolish. My understanding of scripture and marriage was woefully short. But I did understand that. I understood that at that point in time, I was essentially being born again. In that life was now different from this point of demarcation. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. He's saying... And this is going to come clear in the following verses. But Nicodemus, you see yourself as this great man. You're the teacher of Israel. You're a Pharisee. You're a leader. You're a ruler. You've you've been married. You've gone to Pharisaical school. You've graduated. You're teaching other Pharisees. You've had all these demarcations in life, which, which even from your frame of reckoning means that your life was restarted. You were Nicodemus the single guy. You became Nicodemus the married man. You were Nicodemus who wasn't a Pharisee. You became Nicodemus the Pharisee. You were Nicodemus who who became the teacher of Israel, which, by the way, is an expression that means the, the leader of a rabbinical school, somebody who would train other rabbis, other Pharisees. And at that point, it was considered this was a whole fresh start in life, born again. Nicodemus, you've been born again in pretty much every single way that somebody in your culture can be perceived to be born again. But I'm telling you this. That despite the fact you're a Jew, despite the fact you're a Pharisee, despite the fact that you are qualified in every religious department, that you check every religious box, that you will not have the most basic thing that you believe all Jews will have, a place in the kingdom. You will not have it unless your life starts fresh all over again. That's what he's saying. To put it in the context of James, yes, Nicodemus, you have faith. 
You have faith in me. You believe that I'm from God. But that belief and the basis of that belief is insufficient. It's insufficient. It's not enough. And so we have this whole discussion. We see Nicodemus saying progressively less and Jesus saying progressively more as the conversation goes on. Nicodemus asks him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus is not troubled by the expression born again. He's just run out of ways to be born again. And so he's being um, uh, hyperbolic in his expression. And so Jesus explains what he means. Truly, truly, there's that expression again. You're not going to believe it. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that uh, which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, without getting into the details, and there are a lot of details, and they're much argued over in these verses, that the broad picture here is this, that you have done everything in the realm of the flesh... You've done everything in the realm of the flesh. You've become a Pharisee. You've, taught, you've, you've, taught, you've become a teacher of the Pharisees. You, you've, you've gone through all these procedures. You've memorized scripture. You've done all of these things in the flesh. But something needs to happen in the spiritual realm before you can have a place in the kingdom of God. And he says, do not marvel, because he is marveling. He has to say truly, truly, twice. Because the Pharisees taught this. They taught that all Israel has a share in the kingdom of come. The kingdom to come. You're born a Jew, you're in the kingdom. You're born a Jew, you're in the kingdom. All you Jews, you're all in the kingdom. You all have a place in the kingdom. You Gentiles, no, you don't have a place. Come and be circumcised, come and take the law, and we might give you a place in our kingdom. But you're a Jew, you're in the kingdom. That was their teaching. That was such a problematic teaching to them after the Christians came along. Because the Christians, most of the early Christians, were Jews. Oh, you can't be in the kingdom. <laughs> they had to readjust their whole, the whole doctrine. They, they, they started the doctrine of the foreskin angel. I kid you not. The rabbis taught about a foreskin angel. So all of these pesky Christians who are circumcised, that when they die, the foreskin angel will come and replace their foreskin so that they are no longer going to have a place in the kingdom of God. It was a problematic doctrine. Jesus is telling them it's wrong. He's saying that you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to have a spiritual birth. It's that kind of birth. Do not marvel that you say, I must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. Let's unpack this, because this is what we need to hear for James. Okay? Right. The Pharisees would say, you've had your bar mitzvah, born again. You've gotten married, born again. You've become a Pharisee, born again. And each of these times that you're going through life, and life is changing, and you're coming to new seasons of life, there are things that are in the physical realm. There are things of the flesh. They are looking at what he can do. He is, he know, he is qualified. He has studied. He can be a Pharisee because he has the right understanding of Scripture. He now knows it so well he can teach other Pharisees. They would have memorized the entirety of the Old Testament from beginning to end. He would have known his Bible back to front. He did everything that he could do. And they said to him, hey, Nicodemus, are you going to have a place in the kingdom of God? 
They would have laughed at such a question. If there's anybody standing on the face of God's earth who's going to have a place in the kingdom of God, it's Nicodemus. Because he was born a Jew. He had a bar mitzvah. He know he, know he was married because he had to be married to be a Pharisee. He's gone into life as a Pharisee. He's trained and studied as a Pharisee. And now he's at the point where he is the teacher of Israel and he's training other Pharisees. He is able to check every single box. And yet, <clears throat> he is circumcised in the flesh, but he's not circumcised in the heart. He is not born again spiritually. <clears throat> and Jesus says this should not be a shock to you. Of course it shouldn't be a shock. The concept of Jews who are Jews, who are not saved, who have not been circumcised in the heart, though they were circumcised in the flesh, is a central theme of many of the Old Testament prophets. He should have known this. He memorized the passages, but he didn't understand them. But look at what he says. The wind... Greek word for wind is the same word as for spirit. And the wind, the spirit, blows where it wishes and you hear it sound. So he's equating the spirit and the wind. And he says, it goes where it wishes. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. God comes by his spirit and saves people. Now, does that mean that because we can't check boxes... Bar mitzvah, marriage, Pharisee, memorizing a scripture, keeping the law, blah, blah, blah. Because we can't check those boxes. Does that mean that we have no idea when the spirit saves? No, no, no. Because you hear the sound of the wind. The wind blows in as it wishes. It's not controlled. But you know it's there because you hear the sound. So Jesus is able to say to to Nicodemus... I don't trust you. I don't believe in you, though you believe in me. Wow, how can he make that kind of judgment? Do you you know? What do do you know? Well, because he can hear the wind. Here is a man who says, I've seen you do miraculous things, so you must be from God. And Jesus says, well, that's right, and that's faith, but it's not saving faith. It's insufficient faith. Do you understand? And so <clears throat> Nicodemus asks him how these things can be. Jesus says, are you not the teacher of Israel? Again, that means it's the teacher. It's definitive. It's explicit. It is a term that was used of those who were teachers in rabbinical schools, taught other Pharisees. In other words, a bit like James 3. Not many of you should be, should be quick to be teachers. You're a teacher of people. You're supposed to teach in the Bible. You don't understand the Bible yourself. That's what he's saying there. He says, truly, truly, third time, you you need to know this, you should know this, but you're not going to believe this. I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness of what you've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If you've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, clearly the spiritual realm was not understood to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And again, you've read that in Numbers recently, if you've done the Bible reading plan. That there were serpents and snakes, and they were biting people. And there were people as a judgment from God, and people were dying, because the snakes bit them, and poison was going into their body, and they're dropping down dead. And the instruction to Moses was, make a bronze serpent, put it up on a post, and hold it up, and here's your serpent... 
And when people looked at that serpent, though they were bitten, they didn't die. Could God have just said, hey, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to take the serpents away. Sure, he could have done that. But he said, I want you to look upon this. I want you to understand if you're bitten, that sucking the poison out, chopping the leg off, doing whatever else that you want to do, isn't going to cut it. The way that I have determined that you will be saved from the effect of this poison is by looking and trusting that by looking on this one that you're going to be saved. And Jesus equates that with himself and says, as the, as, as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There needs to be a trust in Jesus and looking to him. And then we have the explanation of that, the very famous John 3.16. For God so loved the world and gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That it is trusting and believing in Jesus. Now here is a verse that is so well known because it's a verse that, are, that we use to argue salvation by faith alone, is it not? How, how, how is it that a person is saved? They believe, John 3.16. And yet what's the whole point of John 3.16 in context? That there's a faith that saves, but there's a faith that doesn't save. The whole point of John 3.16 is not that you have a faith in Jesus of some sort and that you're saved but that you have to have the right kind of faith in Jesus Nicodemus had a faith in Jesus but it was the wrong kind of faith that's why after John 3 you have John 4 and you have a woman who's a Samaritan who just as Nicodemus checks every box in the flesh she checks every box that she would not be saved in the flesh and yet here is a person who places her trust in Jesus. Because, like Nicodemus, she believes he's from God, but then it becomes apparent that he is not just someone from God, he's not just someone who's a prophet, but he is the Messiah. And it is that faith that is so crucial. And so there is, there is belief, and there is believing. John 4, woman, believe me, he says. that In John 3 and 4, this is absolutely central, this idea of faith and believing, and the right kind of faith. And this is the right kind of faith. For the one who God has lifted up, we look to that one, and we trust in that one. Now that was quite an excursus, wasn't it? But that's a necessary excursus for us to come to, John, to James 2. So let's go back to James 2, and let's put everything that we've learned from James 2. Bearing in mind that James has already multiple times referenced Jesus. James has referenced Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He's referenced many of Jesus' sayings. And we could spend a lot of time going through James and arguing over precisely what things that are said are alluding to things that Jesus has said. But we all agree that Jesus is very much at the foundation here. And so when James says... James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if somebody says he has faith but does not also have works? Can that faith save him? That concept is a concept that is perfectly in harmony with the teachings of Jesus presented in the Gospels. It is very, very clear that what Jesus taught, whether the Gospels were actually written at the time of James or not, certainly there wouldn't have been multiple copies even if they were. But everybody there was grounded in the things that Jesus had said and the things that Jesus had done. 
They were all aware of Jesus. They were grounded on Jesus. They were built on Jesus. Jesus was their everything. So when James says to them, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and not works, can that faith save him? There is nothing new here. Because the whole story of Nicodemus is saying simply that. Now Nicodemus, on the one hand, is saying that your works... The things you do in the realm of the flesh do not save you. It has to be your faith that saves you. But the faith that saves you has to be the right kind of faith. And that kind of faith is a spiritual faith. It's a faith in the spirit. And when the spirit comes, just like when the wind comes, he makes a noise. You know he's there. And there they were, gathered in the upper room, and the Spirit comes, and there is a rushing of wind. There was something in the physical realm to indicate that the Spirit was there. There is, in the physical realm, things to indicate that the Spirit is there. So let me say in conclusion two things. We've got one verse done this week. We're going to do the whole of the rest of the passage next week because we have our foundation now. It makes life easier. Okay? But I want you to understand these two things going out. We believe that a person is justified by their faith and not by their works. Then they are saved by faith alone. That is the clear unbridled, uncompromised teaching of the New Testament and we hold to it absolutely unequivocally. That is our faith. And we understand it in this way. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus, all of your things that you have accomplished, all the ways in which you have been born again, they are insufficient. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, if anyone saved in the flesh, it's me. Here's my checklist. And then he says, I consider it all to be, depending on your version, rubbish, dung. He basically says it's, it's, it's of no value. It's of nothing. There's nothing in the flesh that we can go, hey God, look at what I did. And God could say, that's the kind of guy I want. The only thing that we can present to God by which he will accept us is I am looking to the Son who is lifted up. I am trusting by faith in this one who has accomplished all on my behalf and my accomplishments are nothing and I am trusting in his accomplishments. Friends, we are saved by faith alone. Absolutely. 100%. But what we need to be equally clear on, something that the church in this country, in many geographical regions have been very unclear on. That there is a faith in Jesus, in his name, in him, in who he is, that is not a saving faith. And the sad truth is, that in church after church around this land, I've not been there, I don't know the area well, but I'm told it's more problematic in the Bible Belt, but I'm sure it's problematic everywhere. There are people who are goats who think that they're sheep. There are people who pray in the name of Jesus. People who have been raised in a church, who have attended church, who Jesus this and Jesus that. Maybe people who read their Bibles. 
People who would never be away from church on a Sunday morning. People who, who would describe themselves as a Christian. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. My mama was a Christian. I was raised a Christian. I am a Christian. And they will use the name of Jesus. And it is absolutely, abundantly clear that they have faith. How do you know they have faith? Because they say they have faith. You, do, you, do you believe in Allah? No, I don't believe in Allah. I believe in Jesus. Do you go to a mosque? No, I don't go to a mosque. I go to a church. They have faith, and their faith is a Jesus kind of faith. But there are so many of those people who go to church on a Sunday, can quote to you from the Bible, who tell you about Jesus, who live like the rest of the world. Sometimes in more overt ways. Sometimes it's just that they're kind of like all their friends and colleagues. They hooked up with someone at college and now they're living together. They're not quite ready to settle down and get married yet, but they're going to they're gonna share a bed. Maybe it's their embracing of the standards of the world. Well, obviously that's not wrong. I mean, we, don't, we can't say that's wrong because that would make God unloving. Or maybe it's in the stuff that we would overlook. Maybe it's the pride in their heart. Maybe it's the fact that they show partiality. What I'm saying is this. We can bleat and plead Jesus, Jesus all we like. But the scripture is abundantly clear that many people will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, get away from me, I never knew you. What is clear is that when the Spirit comes, he makes a noise. That there is evidence of the arrival of the wind. And there is evidence of the arrival of the Spirit. The Spirit that makes one born again spiritually. The Spirit of God that opens one's eyes to the Gospel. That allows one to be saved. In other words, my friends, it is 100% biblical and accurate. Old and New Testament to say that there is a faith that does not save. It is not only biblically accurate to say that there is a faith that does not save. But it was absolutely foundational to the teaching of Jesus. John 3 does not stand in isolation. John 3 leads to John 4, where there is a Samaritan woman who is the example of one who has true saving faith as opposed to one who doesn't. That this whole idea of people who had faith that didn't save because they saw miracles and signs... That that is brought up again and again in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and the feeding of the, of the masses on the hillside. That this is all to illustrate that there are people that would follow Jesus, that would listen to Jesus. Because he would do amazing things, like multiplying fish and bread, but they were not saved. And we could see that they were not saved, because there was not the rushing of wind. Because when Jesus said difficult things, they rejected the words of Jesus. And there are churches up and down the land where there are people who say the name of Jesus, but there is no rushing of wind because they reject the words of Jesus. And there is lacking to be evidence of their faith. In years gone by, I would have shied away from such teaching. I can remember being at Bible college students coming to me and saying, man, I just don't have assurance of salvation. 
I'll tell you, there were some students where I was teaching that had no right to have any assurance of salvation. It was very clear that maybe they should be questioning some things. But it was never them that came to speak to me. It was always the gentle ones, the softly spoken ones. It was always the ones that I considered to care about God and the things of God. And they said, I'm not really sure that I'm saved. And so I would see that distinction and I would again and again encourage them and say to them, no, 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 it's not you who should be worrying about it. It's, it's kind of maybe some of those other people. You could be assured if you trusted in the gospel, you should be assured. But now, maybe seven years later, six, seven years later, five, six, seven years later, from these conversations, I've seen some of those people walk away from the faith. And I wish I'd emphasized it more. Friends, we can come to this church, we can listen to the teaching, and we cannot be saved. It's perfectly possible. I know that when I first came here, a bunch of people, this is their church, and they come here, and they come and they hear my teaching, and they say, Pastor, thank you for your teaching. And it became clear to me after a period of years that they just didn't get it. That, that you could have had anybody up here teaching and they wouldn't have really, they'd have just said, Pastor, thank you for the teaching. Because they come to church and someone teaches and that's what you do at church and that's how they were raised and that's what they do. There wasn't a passion in them for the word of God. There wasn't a desire to follow God. It, was, there, there was, it wasn't there. There was some lacking, something lacking in their faith. If there's one thing I want you to take away is to search your heart. To search your heart. No, I don't want people who are sensitive in their spirits to be going away saying, maybe I'm not saved, maybe I'm not saved, and to have that anxiety hanging over you. I, I, I want to be clear on this. You just need to look at the one who's been lifted up. And you need to say, have I trusted in him? Have I trusted in him? And am I trusting in him? Is there evidence of that? And what James is going to do, and what we're going to see next time as we go through this passage in a lot of detail, is we're going to see what evidence is there to show that we are a Samaritan woman as opposed to a Nicodemus. What evidence is there to show that our faith is true saving faith? And what he's saying is this. If somebody has a faith, but that faith means that they can say, love, 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 I'm loving my neighbor, but they're still showing partiality. If a person is saying, I love you, I love you, but they're not exercising that love. Or to put it in another way, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now don't get too distracted by the illustration it's an example. He's not saying, if you don't feed everybody who needs feeding, you're not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. If, by example, someone comes to you and says, oh, I'm really hungry. I'm about to die if I don't get food. And you say to them, be warm, be filled. They still haven't got food. In other words, your declaration of feeding is empty because there is no food. In the same way, and that's the only point of this illustration. In the same way, if you say, I have faith, make sure your faith is not as, as empty as a statement saying, be warm and filled. 
Is that not a scary thought? And that's why this section is inclusioed, sandwiched by the expression, what good is it, verse 14? And then at the end of verse 16, what good is that? And the conclusion of this section, the intro to this passage, and the conclusion of our message this morning is in verse 17. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, if you read that verse alone about 45 minutes or so ago, then that would have seemed to you to be perhaps problematic with a Pauline approach to justification of faith. I hope now that you can see what's being said here. Like with Nicodemus, there is a kind of faith that is not a genuine saving faith. And if you have a faith and say, I believe in Jesus, but your actions are not the rushing of wind, then maybe your faith is not the right kind of faith. That is something that we're going to explore with James very thoroughly next time. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, as we consider this, this concept, concept of what is true faith, I pray for two things. Firstly, I pray that everybody here who has true and genuine saving faith, that they wouldn't be rattled or shaken or discouraged or receive anxiety unnecessarily over teaching such as this. But that they would look to the one that you have lifted up and they would know that they have placed their trust and their faith in him. They would see how their desires have changed and how their ways have changed and how their lives have changed. And though they're not perfect, and though they still fail, and though they still fall, and though they still have sinful desires, and though they still have misunderstandings, that they can see the ways in which you've changed their lives. And they would be encouraged that they are truly saved. And that they would cry out to you to change them all the more. But Lord, I also pray for any who aren't saved. I pray, Lord, that you will make it clear. I pray, Lord, that you would save them. I pray, Lord, that you would show those with inadequate faith that their faith is just that, inadequate. That though they believe in Jesus, that maybe he doesn't believe in them. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Your word is hard, Lord. Pierces our hearts. May we receive from your word again today. May we trust in your word. May we have faith in your word. Knowing that believing what you say is the hallmark of true saving faith. Amen.